Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore and Evan Grant. Hello, fellas. It's a big week in uh, local Dallas-Fort Worth news. We've got uh, the Cowboys playing the 49ers this week in a playoff game. Well, not a playoff game, but feels like a playoff game. That's what Micah Parsons said. Playoff implications. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that that? we got the Rangers in the playoffs as we're taping this. It is Tuesday morning before they play their first game, but that's still big news. And we've also got Texas OU this week at the end of the week. We've got the uh, the after effects of the Ryder Cup embarrassment. Of course, the, the what is this? How, how do you refer to it when it's every four years, the quadrennial embarrassment of, of playing, yeah. uh, losing the Ryder Cup in Europe? Um a lot of stuff going on uh, this week. We're going to start off with the Rangers uh, and uh, a little uh, kind of a hoorah built up over the fact that uh, the Rangers celebrated with a little champagne toast there for clinching the playoffs on Saturday against Seattle uh, going into Sunday, in which, of course, they lost that game one to nothing um, and lost out a chance to be the division champs and sort of uh, bypass the wild card round altogether and be the host of the ALDS at Globe Life Field. Would have been a lot of good things happen if they'd won that game or if they'd won, you know, one of the first two games as well. You know, uh, if Jonathan Hernandez had been able to complete, uh, completely clean up the mess that Aroldis Chapman left him uh, in game one of that series, it would have been really nice. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Uh, I give Jonathan Hernandez a lot of credit for getting as far as he did. Uh, but uh, before we get to that question, I want to ask Evan something about that because I haven't talked to him about it. We're going to talk first about this whole uh, kind of hoo-ha about the celebration. Uh, Evan kind of got into it a little bit with a lot of uh, people on Twitter uh, on Monday. And so, Evan, let's let's just start with that and your thoughts. You were there when it happened, the, celebrate, the champagne celebration after – Saturday night's win. So, yeah, I the Rangers popped some bottles um, in the clubhouse, sprayed champagne for 15 or 20 minutes, um, and then went back to their lounge area to watch the rest of the Astros game, which was a one nothing game, which at that point in time, or a 2-1 game. No, it was, that was one nothing, um, which would have uh, potentially had an impact on – on whether or not they won the division. Uh, I think there are questions whether when a team reaches a postseason berth in Major League Baseball now, whether it's the wild card or whether it's a division championship, there is champagne in the clubhouse. The question is whether it's in some cheap flutes and there's a toast or whether a team sprays it. Um, The Rangers chose to spray champagne. And so there were some people that when 
The Rangers lost on Sunday, one nothing to Seattle, um, who connected the two and said that, well, clearly they had their minds too much on partying and not enough on playing the game. And I just, I just think that's inaccurate. I, you know, I wrote about what I saw in the clubhouse on Saturday night. Um, I've been in clubhouse celebrations before or when teams have partied after clinching uh, a series or a championship. And this was not that. Certainly there's some photos on social media as there are in every team of some champagne being sprayed. But I think what, I, I think the narrative that got out there is somehow the Rangers let this thing get carried away and it became a party and they showed up the next day un, unable to compete. Uh, I don't think that's accurate. I, I think that's just revisionist history. And I don't have a problem with what they did in the clubhouse. Again, it's been seven years since they've been to the playoffs. I thought that their celebration was, by all accounts, pretty restrained. And, you know, by the time I was talking to players 15 or 20 minutes later, half, not half, but a handful of players were already out of the shower and dressed and walking out of the clubhouse. And Marcus Simeon, who was photo, you know, photographed, having champagne sprayed on him, had watched the end of the Astros game, um, was eating a Chick-fil-A, obviously the celebration dinner of champions or wildcard teams, and was getting ready to come back the next day. And I don't, I just don't see where the story is, except that it all this also then got turned into a social media post comparing that the Astros, when they clinched at least a wildcard bid, just had a little toast with no spraying and the Rangers sprayed. So it's the spray or not the spray argument, Kevin. <laughs> well, one, my first question is what was the champagne? Because if it was expensive champagne, it was irresponsible to spray it. They should have. No, it. it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was, I think 1299 a bottle. It was. Uh, okay. Well, spraying it's fine. I have no yeah. problem with that. First off. It, 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 Second, it was, uh, my, my whole thing is people, people who are trying to draw a line to because of this, because of their reaction to clinching a playoff spot, they lost the final game of the regular season. My question would be, have you watched this team over the last two weeks? I mean, there was no, no one can get a read on this team. Remove that from the equation. You don't know what's going to happen one day to the next, one series to the next with this team late in the season, the way it has unfolded. So, but, but you're exactly right. People draw this. This gets traction because they lost, and so now you juxtapose that against the scene, and you go, "See, this is a group that doesn't get it." And all this, and and there is no correlation. You should be able to. I mean, it, the Astros celebrated differently. Well, what have the Astros done over the last seven years that the Rangers have not? Right. They've had a level of success to where this is. This is an accepted practice for them to make the postseason. So every every team and every celebration is unique to the moment of where that franchise is, which no one takes into account on something like this. But the other side of it is, in today's world, images override the narrative, or images become the narrative. And it doesn't matter what you say or what you don't say if people want to latch on to an image to support whatever their initial impression is, that's it. And and they just the Rangers gave 
you know, everyone who wants to, you know, just find fault with anything, an image that is irrefutable to say, well, I don't care what you're saying. Of course, this was a bad look. Look at this. Look what happened the next day. I would, um, the, the one thing I would just add is that, you know, I have talked to several former players um, about that whole subject of do you celebrate, do you not celebrate? And we can all have, you know, none of us who have competed at a high level and have accomplished anything at, at that level, we can all have our own narratives about the mindset. And I've heard that word and, and all of that. But there's another, there's another mindset too. And the mindset is, you give this team that's worked so hard to complete, to create and, and accomplish a vision, a taste of it, and say, "Hey guys, this was fun. Let's go out and win tomorrow, and come back and do this all over again." Because that's what they would have done. That it's a bonding experience. It's another app opportunity to bond. Guys have fun. Guys enjoy one another. They spend time with one another. You can make the case any way you want. In 2012. The Rangers didn't really celebrate when they clinched a wild card. And then they went out and laid an egg in Oakland, too. So um, I, I do think in some ways the narrative just becomes a story, and it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, what all matters now is whether or not the Rangers can find a way to win two games on the road as opposed to having to go to, to get some rest and just go win three games at home. I, I, look, I agree with all of that, but I will say this, too. Before they even got to the champagne celebration, when they celebrated on the field, it occurred to me when I was watching that, you know what? I thought it would have been kind of cool if they just walked out there and shook hands and they acted like because because we would be writing about a team that said this team didn't want to celebrate this. This team felt like that they were they had not done their job yet. And that would have been that would have been a narrative. That that would have been something that would have been picked up and people would have talked about, yeah, that's look at that. Look what these Rangers did. You know, this is how far they've come as a team. So I, I but, think Kevin, I'll also give you this. The narrative on Corey Seager is that he always looks like he's not having fun. When people want right. to bitch about Corey Seager, they say he looks like he's not having fun. Like Marcus Simeon is too serious. So they went out and they had fun. I, I just think this becomes like kind of it, it's a fan thing. And I get it. We all want to have our opinions of what looks and doesn't look right. And I think that the great thing is um, the longer – that, that as things change, we're all we're all kind of required to consider like were the norms in the past or what we considered to be the norms do they still apply? I don't have no. the answer. I just know you, from you my would probably wear flip flops to the White House, wouldn't you, Evan? No, I would never. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't, okay, we don't want to just get too far uh, out in the weeds on this discussion, but I do. I just do think that there is. You don't want to get into a champagne jam. There are, you know, there are two sides to this story, and I, I do think that there is a, 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 a topic to discuss on each side, which we just did. And I, I think that uh, there's really probably no right or wrong in this. I think that that both sides have a point in it, uh, and, and I think that it's unfortunate that people can't see that both sides. So anyway. All right, let's move on from that to talk about the about the Rangers in general. So, uh, so Evan, yeah, the, the, just what I was talking to you about a while ago uh, on on the ball that that when when uh, Jonathan Hernandez came in to that uh, terrible situation, Aroldis Chapman had left him with the bases loaded and no outs in in the bottom of the ninth, um, and he did a tremendous job getting the first two outs uh, without obviously letting a run score. And then the, then the double to left field. 
Uh, was Evan Carter playing too shallow on that ball? No, they wanted him playing shallow. Um, you know, and again, this is the, the world of second guessing, right? In Cleveland, two weeks earlier, ball fell in front of him, and questions were whether he was playing too deep. I went back and I asked lots of questions about this. Um, asked about outfield positioning. I went back and I looked at the spray chart for Crawford and all of that, and there was nothing to suggest that that not playing shallow enough there to have a, to have an ability to throw a guy out at home with the winning run was not the way to go. Um, but before we go any further, Kevin, I should just say the Rangers, just as, as we're recording this, just sent out their playoff roster, and Jonathan Hernandez is not on it. Apparently he has a shoulder injury that happened sometime, I guess, Sunday when he was pitching the eighth inning, but he is not on it, so the bullpen has taken yet another. Yeah, yes. that's brutal. Well, because, you know, I, I'll tell you, uh, I felt, you know, you know, I, I felt bad for Jonathan Hernandez in that game. I mean, I felt like that, you know, earlier in the season when he came back and when he came back from that long stint when they sent him down in his first game back, which is just a disaster. It's almost an embarrassing thing moment for a pitcher as, as I've seen. You know, he just looked completely lost in that game. And, and the guy's been a good pitcher in his time and, uh, and has struggled. And then to see him come back from that and pitch so well in the last couple of weeks, uh, and then and then to be put in an impossible situation against uh, uh, the Mariners there in the ninth inning with no outs and the bases loaded. J.B. Newberg had a note the other day that said if he had gotten that third out, we'd be talking about that inning for the you know for the rest of his life. You know the fact that he came in that situation and then the Rangers would have won the division with, with two wins against the Mariners. So uh, it, it was an unbelievable situation. It's just that on that play with, with the bases loaded, to me, you, you know, it, it's an impossible situation, you know, whether you're playing shadow or you're playing deep or not. And and you just talked about the spray charts and everything. To me, the uh, you, you can see that the tying run in that situation, and, and I don't want to give up the winning run. Uh, that's what, and that's why I would lead him back. But at any rate, uh, it was kind of a, another one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't moments. Um, all right, so no Jonathan Hernandez, and, and frankly, I think it was it was setting up as him what they always wanted him to be the eighth inning guy, and Jose Leclerc is the ninth inning guy, and and, and you just leave a roll to Chapman out of, this, out of the situation altogether. Frankly, uh, at this point, I just I don't know how you roll a roll to Chapman out there. Uh, at this point, after what he did the other day, I mean, and, and this has kind of been a little bit of his mo uh, since he came first came in and did great for about I don't know five or was it like about a half dozen or a dozen uh, appearances, and then after that, he just really started to 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 be such a Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, um, it's uh, I I think the problem that I have with Chapman is. Um, he's hard to, he's hard. It's hard for him to come back on back-to-back days now. That's, that's the biggest issue. And that's, that's a big weakness for me in the, in the playoffs. Um, uh, I don't know how you get, I I mean, we're, we're talking about a a question right now. That's, that's almost impossible to answer because I don't know how they get through, um, this playoff series or any playoff series, you know, if they, if they can't count on Chapman on back-to-back days, if they're not going to have Jonathan Hernandez, um, 
maybe Josh Spores and and Jose Leclerc do get the job done. Jose's pitched great in September, um, but it's going to be a real scramble to get through anything. Yeah, it is. Uh, the good thing is, is that a lot of teams are scrambling in, in their bullpens. Unfortunately, not Tampa Bay. Uh, the Rays have a, a very good bullpen and uh, have done a good job with theirs. Got a couple of uh, ex-Rangers in their bullpen who are doing pretty well, as a matter of fact, Evan. Yeah, um, you know, and I, I, I – um, Jake Diekman was a guy that they had some interest in or – over the winter and he ended up going um, back to the White Sox and then got released and Tampa Bay picked him up and um, Fairbanks, I did is Fairbanks out. I, I haven't kept up with. No, I think he's, 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 he's available. He's available. You know, that was a trade that probably the Rangers regret Um, the Nick Solak for Pete Fairbanks deal. But Fairbanks is a guy who has had a long history of shoulder problems is multiple Tommy Johns. Um, and, and so the Rangers gave up on that. And I, I would say this, trading pitching to Tampa Bay is always a very uh, – it's a risky endeavor. They yeah. know what they're doing when it comes to pitching. Let me ask you this real quick about Kevin Cash, uh, the, uh, the the Rays manager. So, obviously, he interviewed with the, the Rangers uh, when they uh, uh, signed Jeff – or they hired Jeff Bannister – how would that have changed the the arc of the Rangers? You believe if, if Kevin Cash had been hired uh, by the Rangers instead? Um, good question. I think the Rays. I think at that point in time, the Rays were ahead of the Rangers, certainly in the amount of data and information they were processing. Um, and I think the Rangers thought they were getting that in Jeff Bannister. And I don't know that that's, that that's exactly what they got in Jeff. And so I, I think that the organizations were timed up better for cash to have a, a better impact long-term. Um, the organization philosophy was, was more advanced and able to really mesh with who cash is. I don't know if the same would have taken place with the Rangers. I do know this. He's really good. He works really well with their front office. They have a great dynamic. And um, uh, the, Rays have, the, the Rays have continually outperformed what people expected they would perform. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. I think he, he is a great fit there. I don't know that it would have been the same fit here. Um, and I don't know how much different it would have made for, you know, the difference between him and Jeff Bannister or, or what happened to Chris Woodward either. You know, I don't, he, Kevin Cash is probably a better manager than either one of those guys, but he's a better manager in Tampa Bay than I think he would have been here. Cause just, just what you said, a lot of the things that were added, uh, I think you're right. The Rangers, when they added all those people to their, to their numbers crunching crew uh, that was pretty much after that, as I recall. And so um, it would have been different, but it's still interesting to think about, uh, you know, at this point, Kevin Cash has done a fabulous job for, for the Rays, but uh, Bruce Bochy's done a pretty fabulous job for the uh, the Rangers this year. And so that you, you end up in a, in a different place. And because of that, uh, because of how it blew up for the Rangers, you ended up, with one of the, the best managers in baseball. Uh, so uh, and I don't think we can. Well, uh, two managers uh, later. 
Two managers later, yeah, a lot of pain and two managers yeah, later, yeah, absolutely. There's a transition uh, period in there, yeah. Yeah, there was. Uh, but, you know, you end up at this place now, and that's and that's part of all that discussion, right? If if everything had gone the way it was, you know, they, the Rangers had hoped uh, over the last few years, uh, then, you know, they, you would, might not have gone through all this pain, but I don't think you would have been in this place that they are right now either. I don't think if, if Chris Young, uh, you know, Chris Young wouldn't be the general man. He, he might, he would still be working for the Rangers, but they might not have made some of the moves they've made. They might not have done some of the radical stuff because Chris is just a little more impatient than John Daniels. Uh, and so we see where uh, the club is right now. It's a very interesting question about how far they can go now. Uh, it, it's been a remarkable season. Evan, I wanted to just ask this really quick before we get out of this Rangers segment, because we, we certainly have to pay tribute to what they've done uh, this year. Who gets the most credit in this? Does, does, Chris Young, does Chris Young get the most credit? Does Bruce Bochy get the most credit? And Mike Maddox? Where do, where do you put all that? Oh, this is another reason why I'm a failure at this. I, I hate this game. <laughs> um, I, I listen. I think the I, I think the credit goes to to the players, and the credit goes organizationally. Um, Chris Young made some some really bold moves, but Ray Davis had to be willing to pay luxury tax to, to get there. And he invested 800 million plus dollars to do it. Uh, Bruce Bochy was a brilliant hire um, and it was the right time and he's the right guy. Uh, but it's those players who go out and do it every day. Um, I think they, I think the Rangers did a really good job of doing everything they could to jump the process in the rebuild taking longer I think there are a lot of holdovers from the previous administration that have made big contributions, right? Josh Young was a 2019 draft. Evan Carter was a 2020 draft. Adolis Garcia was, a, you know, an outright steal from St. Louis. Um, and, and Dane Dunning, Nate Lowe, Jonah Heim, all trades in the middle of that rebuild. So I think organizationally it just says that this is a team that was committed to getting it right and put the resources in to finish it off. Um, and they're in a good position going forward. I haven't really have a chance to actually write about what happens going forward, but we'll write that whenever the season is over. Uh, but this is, this is a team that's in good position. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, and, and, and that was a good answer. I see you, you say you're not good at that. That was a good answer. I think that's all true. We, you know, sometimes we might try to make things a little too simple. Life's not ever as simple as we like to think it it, it should be. Yes, uh, yes you're wrong. Down to whether you sip or or spray champagne. Sip or spray. I want to ask one last question. I know we were. I said that we were getting out. I had to ask this question. So you lied. Two at two last lie. questions. I lie all the time. Come on, I'm a father of four. I have to. <laughs> uh, when you. Uh, uh, Jordan Montgomery is going to is obviously starting the first game of this as we as we speak, and he has been really very good. And, you know, and I just thought all along that Jordan Montgomery was a rental, especially because Scott Boris is his agent. Is there any chance at all they re-sign Jordan Montgomery? Because I got to tell you, I really like what he presents. Oh, I you know I don't know. I mean, I I I think that um, they're going to need. Well, you've got Scherzer, you've got Uvalde. Uh, you've got you probably got Heaney in your rotation. You've clearly got Dunning in your rotation. Um, they're going to need a fifth starter um, for next year. Uh, certainly Montgomery has pitched really well. 
I just don't know if this, these last two weeks have parlayed him into a bigger contract than maybe the Rangers are willing to pay. They've got a lot of money sunk into starting pitching at this point. Um, and at some point, you know, the, the biggest failure – the biggest failure on the field this year was the bullpen. The biggest failure organizationally was that they didn't really develop any 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 big league starters, um, and that's something that's, that they're going to have to do. They may not have to develop a whole rotation, um, and you probably can't develop a whole rotation, but they've got to have a couple of starters come through. I just don't know that they're in a position to go into 2024 and contend and say, we've got that guy in-house. So you may have to pay out you may have to pay out again. And and if that's the case, I think that the the last eight weeks with Jordan Montgomery have been fruitful. I think he's enjoyed it here. Um, and certainly if you're interested in a guy, it's always good to have a little bit of, of time around him to get your arms around him for him to get to know you. Yeah. Well, that's a two way street. No question. All right. All right. We, we hey, are Evan, I, ju- I just have seven more questions for you. <laughs> David, you are the king of, uh, uh, again, no, Evan, can you talk about – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. This is, this is exciting stuff. David, we don't get to talk about the the, the Raiders going to the playoffs. Right? The Cowboys go to the playoffs all the time. Why, they've won they're, – they're winning Super Bowl. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. That's that's not right. Okay. okay. No, no. Before we come back, will the Rangers be playing when we have our podcast next week or will they not be playing when we have our podcast next and week? We'll either have the very quickly, wrap-up episode or uh, we'll be uh, – <laughs> I'll have spent two weeks on the road with one week worth of clothes and figuring out how to get that done. That that was the other thing. I just need to mention that one fact. Like, the, the, after all this, the Rangers, to get home and play a playoff game, will have had a 6,700 cross-country, a 6,700-mile cross-country two-week road trip. So, um, it ain't easy, boys. It ain't easy. That's good stuff. Hey, I, I did pick the Rangers to win. It's just because they have defied logic – these last, you know, three months, why would they defy logic now? And, and That's when series? we did our little roundtable and we were going through everything, I felt like everything that I picked on the stats that I looked at suggested Tampa Bay is going to win this. And when it came time to predict it, I was like, well, okay, I'll pick the Rangers because this team just doesn't match up with what the logic ever says. No, that's true. All right, we had to let Evan go so he can run over and cover that little game that they're uh, playing at, at the Trop, a, a miserable place to watch a ball game. It is really unfortunate that that is the case, uh, that that's where they're opening up. You know, it is, David, it is hard to watch that team. They were this close, this close to being the, the, the West champs and then to be able to to sit out that whole first week. And, that, and that's what I think drives these Rangers fans crazy is that, you know, they – they want to believe in this team, but it is keep giving them uh, it keeps giving them reason to doubt. Uh, it has been a really a roller coaster. I tell you, it's unbelievable. Well, I, like- I, I I don't follow like you guys do, but I mean, I just I look at the series from the outside and I just go, I I will not be surprised if they sweep Tampa Bay or they get swept. I just expect almost one or the other. And oh, both seem just as rational to me to happen. And I don't remember – that's rare that you go into a postseason with such a dichotomy of how you feel the team is going to do. Yeah, well, that's, and, and that's absolutely the truth. I will say the thing about it is if – another reason anything can happen is that you only have to win two games. 
Yeah. It's not it's not a five game series. It's not a seven game series. And they're all in the same site, so you don't have home. Yeah, it's just yeah, it, it, it's all over very fast. It's just three games right in a row, bang bang bang. Uh, so yeah, it, it, I, I have to say I like this format much better uh, than when they used to have the, the old no one game. You just like, one, 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 yeah, sure. one and you were out, and it's like that was that's a disaster. You know th- that's not any good. But what people don't understand too uh, is that in baseball. You you build baseball teams for the regular season and, and to win that because it's 162 games and it's so difficult and, and people talk about trends going out but the thing is once you get to the playoffs all bets are off because then it's just a matter of who gets hot you know just what you said it, it, anything can happen now when people say that they they think you know someone said something about the best team the best team rarely wins the World Series sometimes they do. You know, like when the Dodgers win and then when they have one recently, yes, they are the best team in baseball. But a lot of times, you know, uh, teams that are not very good win and uh, and even get to the World Series. So it'll be interesting to see how it's all. And and the NFL is completely different because 17 games versus 162. And here in week five, there is a game that even though the playoffs are months away, that really do have implications for, you know, what we're going to see in January and February. So, so David, uh, with the Cowboys playing the 49ers uh, this week, or actually next week um, on Monday, uh, do you feel uh, like this, this team is um, better prepared to meet the 49ers than they have been in the playoffs the last two years? Yes. And and one thing I w- one I think they are better defensively. They were very good defensively in each of those last 2 years, but you've seen this group take even more strides in, in the continuity of being together and and the the complementary pieces athletically and how they fit and their uh, personnel packages. Uh it, it's just refined and, and and more advanced than it had been at any point in, in the last 2 years. Now, now, too, also, this is early in the season, and they're not beat up, right? Every team loses something in the war of attrition, offense and defense. This is still early in the season. This is a very healthy defense. All of their, you know, Trayvon Diggs is out, and that hurts. But but you've seen what Deron Bland has done stepping in for him. Um, so that is not, at least at this point, that's not a huge step down. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this Dallas defense is better. Uh, I think their special teams are better uh, than, than what we've seen. Uh, they're, they're certainly making more of a positive impact early in the season. Uh, and, and I thought special teams were good the last couple of years. But again, I just think this is the evolution. I think they're better now. And the offense, while it's not as explosive as past offenses, it's more efficient in some ways. And if you want to talk about being better, let's let's point to this. Uh, Tony Pollard is an essential figure for this team offensively. When they lost that first playoff game to the 49ers a couple of years ago, he touched the ball four times, I think, for 19 yards or 17 yards, something like that. Uh, and in fact, the inability to get the ball to him and C.D. Lamb was a huge issue coming out of that game. Why didn't you get the ball to your playmakers? Last year... He had 22 yards rushing before suffering that injury that knocked him out of the game. So arguably, their most important offensive player 
has only gained a total of like 41 yards against San Francisco in the last two games. He's healthy. The way they're using him this year, you would expect him to have an impact. So that gives Dallas something it really hasn't had these last two times it's faced uh, San Francisco, the way the game's unfolded. So, yeah, I think they're – now, all that being said, does that mean they'll win? Not necessarily because San Francisco's really good. Um, And and they're the team – you know, them and Philadelphia are the teams that Dallas are going to have to go through in order to to take a step beyond where they have in the postseason for the last 27 years. But they're they're right there in the mix. And this is where you this is where you plant your flag early to let to let everyone else know how serious you are about getting there. Okay. Two things. I want to talk about defense first, because that's what you talked about first. And then and obviously that is the Cowboys strength is their defense. Yeah. Uh, and how they play. whenever you talk about this team, you should start with it by talking about the defense because that is the 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 primary driver to their success week in and week out. No question about it. A team so let's take the last two weeks. Against the Cardinals, they've got nothing to lose. That's a bad team. Joshua Dobbs, quarterback, you know, there was no – that was why we all felt like there's no way the Cowboys could yeah. lose this game, right? And yet what the Cardinals did, I thought, was really smart uh, with, with uh, their schemes and what they tried to do, and, and they used the Cowboys' strengths against them, uh, and and, uh, and they suckered them into a lot of stuff. We talked about that last week. Against the the Patriots, I knew that was just going to be just the opposite. I, I the, the, that game was so predictable Sunday because Mac Jones is not going to do what Joshua Dobbs can do. He's not yeah, going to yeah. run with the ball. He's not going to mm-hmm. you know they're not going to run the option all of a sudden. Um, it was a little bit like playing the Jets all over again. I felt like with Zach Wilson that that yeah. this is you know and and now he's <laughs> they they practically run Mac Jones out of the league now. I mean he he got benched in the second half of that game. Uh, you know, it was just uh, a miserable performance for him overall. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing that the difference for me is that obviously the 49ers are a much better team than either one of those teams. Yes. Um, and uh, and because of what the way they run their offense, because they get the ball out of out of uh, Brock Purdy's hands so quickly uh, and let him, uh, uh, you know, they don't expose him to things. That in in some ways to me will will neutralize that that pass rush of the Cowboys, which is so much of what they live yeah. by. And sure. so, how does that defense react to that? That's the key for me. Is how do they react when they're not getting to the quarterback and and not getting not generating two defensive touchdowns in the first half yeah, to totally scramble exactly. the game like exactly. they did in this one. Um, yeah. So so now let's play this out. The Cowboys don't have a sack, and don't force any turnovers in the first half of that game. Then it's about, well, you haven't done it yet, but you still have to remain disciplined because if you allow San Francisco to run on you, then this game gets away from you. So they still, if the the longer, I believe San Francisco will be more committed to it and and make the Dallas defense stop the run longer if uh, if they don't do it. And so Dallas has to play that waiting game with them and just go, no, we're going to match you and match you and match you until maybe we're the ones with a 7-10 to 10 point lead late. And then you're going to be forced into some situations that you normally aren't in and aren't as equipped to handle. And then that's where our pass rush takes advantage of you. So that is where, to, to me, that is, that's the crux of where the Cowboys are. If if 
it, it can be a waiting game with their defense. Just don't turn it over. Don't let them have any sacks. And then if we have a lead in late in the game, Dallas is cooked. But if they, you know, if we're behind and suddenly we're going to have to take up another second on this route to let it develop so we can hit it down the field because we have to score to catch up quickly, then uh, Dallas is in a position where you're playing into their strength. So I, I think some of it, when you have good teams like this, it's just kind of a it, it, it's a waiting game and it's going back and forth and seeing, okay, now we have this little bit of a, here's a sliver here. Let's try to uh, let's try to leverage this and get a little bit of room here. And then if we get that little bit of room, then we can be who we are and force them to be who they aren't. And uh, you, you see that you see that play out with with the good teams, you know, longer. All that being said, both of these teams are capable too, and you've seen this before, teams with really good defense, and both of these both of these teams have a top five defense in the league. I think right now Dallas is two and San Francisco is four. Um, sometimes you get those games where both coaches just scheme it perfectly and boom, suddenly you find yourself in a 31-28 game, you know, which is which is completely out of character. Um, you can't rule those out when you have two good teams like this because they're opportunistic and whatever, however the game unfolds, they're able to seize on that and go forward. But I, I would not anticipate it would be a, a high-scoring game. And, and really, I don't think Dallas wants to get into a high-scoring game because I'm not sure that really – for where this offense is and for their red zone inefficiencies at the moment, I don't know that they would be best suited at this. In, in past years, I think you could go, oh, yeah, they have, if you get them a high-scoring game, Dallas is going to do fine. I, I think now there's a little bit more question about that because this this whole offense is geared toward efficiency and not turning the ball over more than it is explosiveness and, okay, we can overcome some of these turnovers. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I don't think that they want to get into a kind of a slugfest there where it is, you know, all right, we'll, we'll trade scores with you here. Um, I, I, you know, I would have more confidence in the Cowboys if uh, it, because of the, the, the thing you brought up about the red zone inefficiency, which I thought was the, the best part of those press conferences the other day was when he got into it with Todd Archer. Uh, about all that, and and uh, when Dak Prescott did, and and you know the, these things are are all uh, are real. You know when uh, when Dak was asked about, you know Clarence Hill asked about the efficiency. I think Clarence was a little more uh, positive about the uh, how they did in the red zone than Dak was, and, and I and I was glad to hear Dak say that. I was glad to hear Dak <laughs> say it was yeah, it was pretty efficient, but you know we still got a problem. One for four is not good. You know, yeah. and uh, not especially after you were three for eleven in the previous three for two games. eleven, yeah, yeah, so, four for fifteen, yeah. I think they're. Uh, I believe I don't have it right in front of me. I believe there's something like thirty six point seven percent. They rank thirtieth in the league in red zone efficiency. But here's the other thing that's so crazy: they're first in the league in third down conversion rate. Yeah, and rarely it, it, do it, you see a team that is operating peak efficiency in third downs and doing so poorly in red zone. So that's why they're not internally, they're not overly concerned with it because they're saying, well, you know, if there was, if there was really a flaw in this offense, you would see it all the way through, right? It would also be there on third downs would be there. Um, but to me, what exemplified the red zone issues, you, you saw it the very first time they got down in there on third down, they can't even execute a handoff. 
Well, I know. That How about that? That was the, the hardest hit. That was the hardest hit that he took all day long. Was the one yeah. from Dak. You know. Yeah. The, so yeah, that's that's the thing that kind of is an issue for me. And I asked Dak that question, and he he didn't like it. I was just trying to get an idea of. You know, why are you having these problems? Is it because of the new offense? Is it because you're, there's too much thought process going on here? Is it the personnel? Because that's what I believe. It's the personnel. Obviously, you know, that's what I wrote after the game. You know, you don't have a power back. You don't have a guy that if, if, if this is what you want to be, if you want to be a run-based offense, run first, well, then you got to have a little power. You know, it, it, Tony's just not that. I, I like him. You know, he's a really good back. But there was a play in the game. Uh, where Judon came in and got him, uh, kind of came in from the side and, and got him and, and, and literally picked him up and threw him down. Uh, he's, he, he's, I don't believe he's what he's as big as what they list him at. You know, he's just not a very big back and he's not very powerful. You would not have seen anybody do that to Zeke Elliott. And, and, well, and, and again, I'm not that's saying, what, yeah. And, and when I hear this and Zeke Elliott, but you yeah. needed a, you needed a back with that kind of power, somebody who's going to be able to push that pile when you have to have it happen. Yeah, and I don't know that they have that now. And, and I hear this internally, and, and you know the, the the comeback will be, well, look, we feel good about Tony Pollard as a as a red zone runner. Uh, he sticks his foot in there and he goes. You know, he he sees the creep. And, and and my my response to that is, yes. I believe Tony Pollard is a decisive runner. That does not mean he's a power runner in those situations. Right. To me, that's a different thing. He's decisive. He plants his foot and he goes and he gives you a shot. But once he's there, he's not going to move the pile like Ezekiel Elliott. And and, um, and look, that, that was really the last remnant of, of Ezekiel Elliott as an effective NFL running back, right? His power and what he can do in the red zone and picking up yards that a lot of players can't get. Um, you know, that, that's, um, Pollard is just not that player. And I don't know that they have that player on this, on this roster. So you have to go about it differently. And, and we, you know, we talked about this. I, I believe they had 40 red zone touchdowns last year. 20 of those touchdowns are no longer on the roster. It's 12 with Ezekiel Elliott, five with Dalton Schultz and three by a player. No one talks about a Noah Brown. Their wide receiver, yeah. but he yeah. was a but he was a solid red zone presence because of his strength and kind of you know boxing out and, and getting in that position. Um, this team is just built a little bit differently, and and you know Mike McCarthy has said this too. He hasn't really. I, I think this is maybe the last thing to come, but Mike McCarthy hasn't found his rhythm in the red zone yet either. Um, but he's found it between the twenties for sure because again, you know this team. Again, we're talking about this. This is the strangest thing offensively because I've never seen. I it's hard for me to remember a team that has been this efficient and error free and be so bad in the red zone. Mm-hmm. And, and they are. I mean, they only have one turnover through four games. They've only lost the ball once through four games. They've had 16 drives of 10 or more plays already this season. So they're averaging four drives a game of 10 or more plays and usually consuming anywhere from four to seven minutes a clock with that, which leads the NFL. They lead the NFL in third down conversions, and they are just so inefficient in the red zone. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't match up. 
So I, you, you would think the red zone is going to come up and third down is going to come down a little bit. And you'll see a few more turnovers as the season goes along. But th- th- it's just odd to be talking about how bad they are in the red zone when in a lot of ways they're so much more efficient than what we've seen over these last couple of seasons. Yeah, uh, we got to get out of this Cowboys segment. But uh, yeah. yeah, that to me, that's all. It's just about personnel. When you get down there, yeah. you want big people. You don't, you yes. know, it, it, it's a crowded space. You got to have, you know, taller people, bigger people. They don't have that. And and I think I think that is that was just a flaw in the in the construction of, of this roster. If this is what you want to play, you're going to need some big people. Noah Brown's big people. You know, mm-hmm. Zeke Elliott's big people. You know, uh, and, and and so you know, so that's what you get with that. And so far, Brandon the Cooks and Gallops are what speed, but they're not yes, big. Absolutely, and that's you know, you know and yeah. you look and you look at what you know, Schoonmaker gets down there in the in the in the end zone. You've that's had a, three tight end drops touchdown. in the red zone. Three tight end drops between Schoonmaker and Ferguson. You, you catch those three, suddenly they're up. They're in the middle of the pack. Absolutely. On, on, you know, so that's those they're make close. I don't think it's cause for major alarm, but you don't beat a good team like San Francisco. You don't you don't split two games with Philadelphia by being as bad as they are in the red zone. They know they have to improve there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That's going to do it for the Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to move over a little potpourri here. It's just going to be a couple of things we're going to talk about. But uh, first of all, because uh, I, I want to end on Texas. So you, let's talk about the Ryder Cup and how, how the U.S. did in that. Another typical U.S. Uh, Ryder Cup performance in, in when it's in Europe. You know, they they haven't won in the, there since 1993. 1993. I saw that was the last time yeah. they've won on European soil. Yeah, just a, clearly they're just not a road team. You know, got to got to be got to be at home to, to win that. You know, so much of all that stuff is just so ridiculous. You know, this Roy McIlroy thing, getting into it with with caddies. You know, it's like what is going on with these guys? I just don't I don't understand in golf. I think the thing to me that's so interesting Cantlay is not wearing his cap. Oh yeah, and, and then all, saying all it's like, it. well, they, it didn't fit me. Oh, that's it. Because yeah, we we know there's no way you could get a cap that would fit you that said USA. Yeah, they, they can't afford that. Uh, <laughs> but it, 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 it because golf is an individual sport, right? And, until you get to the Ryder Cup, and then it's a team sport. And I just think these guys have the hardest time, you know, getting a feel for that. I think if they want to. I think they all love it. I think they they love the fact that now nah, it's just not about me. I am part of a team, or at least most of them do. I don't know. Who it is that maybe doesn't like it as much? I think there have been uh, golfers that, who feel that way. Who guys who are just a lot more selfish and, and and not good teammates. But it is ridiculous to watch them do what they do, you know. And and uh, and guys, Jordan Spieth started out really well on Sunday, and then just kind of uh, frittered that away. Ended up, you know, with the tie. It just, you, you know, it, it's it is difficult to watch all this stuff kind of happen, you know. Oh, uh, here's I, my question. Why do the European players seem to embrace being part of the team and the U.S. doesn't? What is it about it in the in the different systems and the approach and the personalities? Because well, I'm going to say this, and then people won't like it. I just think they have smaller egos, you know. I, I just think that that's just the culture. Yeah. It, 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 it's every sport, isn't it, David? In hockey, in basketball, in, in, in golf – you know, it's so much more of a team sport in those other sports. You know, mm-hmm. there is so much a deal. Of, it's not about the individual. It's about the team concept. And so you see 
players who come from Europe in hockey and basketball, who are a lot of times are far more grounded in fundamentals than mm-hmm. are U.S. players. And, and that's what people will talk about, how technically good these people are. And I can remember one time being in the Olympics and talking about talking to uh, Russian players about that and about what they were doing. And it's like, you have no idea what they make us do over here. And, you know, when we, the, the, the kind of drills and the things that we go through over here are just excruciating what we do to try to ground these concepts. We don't do that over here. You know, that's not, that's not the way we play. And, and I do think that, you know, I, I'm not saying that these are a bunch of guys with big heads and they're all jerks because they're not. They're all good guys. I, I do think there is a little more of a concept there. It's a little bit of that underdog feeling there. It's it's these European well, They're smaller, teams. sure. It's, it's like sure. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have all that. got to join together sure. here. And so they – and, you know, you, when you got that going for you, that always is a bigger thing to, uh, to go with than uh, when you're going up against the big, bad USA. So I think those are all factors. And and there's look there is there is part of American culture where uh, this is an oversimplification, but style over substance, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, it, it's how you look. It's the it's the celebrity culture. It's individualism within a team sport. Uh, I know we're talking about golf here, but again, it's about standing out as an individual and then being your best self, and then incorporating that into the team. Versus, but it's still a, uh, a a self-centered approach to excellence. It's not a communal or team-centered, you know, perspective as far as excellence. And and so I, this is oversimplistic, but some of it is style over substance versus substance over style. You know, yeah. and, and I think the Europeans are a little bit more substance over style in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's like that's like me and you, David. I, I'm much more a substance guy. You're much more a style guy. I'm, I have neither. I have neither <laughs> style nor substance, which puts me in a completely different category. So let's move on, please. Uh, yeah, don't no, no kidding. All right, all right. We got one of my favorite weekends of the entire year. Texas yeah. OU is the greatest annual sporting event in Texas. Uh, I, I I write that every year just to drum that into people's heads because it is. It doesn't matter. How good the teams are, uh, you you can never predict how it, how it will turn out. You've got you know the crimson all on, on one half of the stadium, the burnt orange on the other half of the stadium. It's the state fair in the background, the backdrop. It is just perfect. There is as as these neutral site games disappear uh, across the landscape in college football. Um, it. it it remains a shining beacon of everything that is right about it because, you know, with all the posturing that has gone on in the years about which, you know, does one school want to make it a home and home series? You know, Texas yeah. kind of did that back a few years. And that was more of a leverage thing, trying to get the you know, Dallas, the city of Dallas to update the cotton bowl and do things that it did. And it did do that. I know that in Oklahoma, they have no desire to make it a home and home. They, they yeah. love coming to Dallas to play this game. It's well, three it's an event. And that's, and you know, here, here's the other thing. There's some, there's still some wonder, a lot, a lot of wonderful rivalries in college football that are home and home. I get that. But how many are in a major market like like this game is? Most of them are in smaller secondary or tertiary, you know, college markets. They're not in major metropolitan areas, you know. Yeah, and this one's and it's right in the middle. It's three yeah. hours difference. Yeah. I think it's a little bit closer. It's an event. 
to, to Norman yeah. than it is to Austin. But you know, it's just it's just perfect. It mm-hmm. it, it, it was has always been perfect. And what we get this year, besides having all that going for it, we get two five and zero teams. The the first time since two thousand nine that both teams have been five and zero or better. Um, they, back in the old days, they didn't play this many games before they got to Texas OU. But now yeah, they're they usually three to four games coming into this, weren't they? Yes. Four, it seemed like usually. Yeah, so it's a little different uh, this year. Uh, these are two really good teams. They played very well so far. Uh, Texas, I think, has has built a little bit better resume, of course, just by going. Both exceeded expectations, wouldn't you say? To this point. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Oklahoma was terrible last year. You yeah. know, losing I mean, especially really. Oklahoma. Yeah. And again, Texas year. is operating at a level that people have lamented them not being at since the last championship. Well, you, you can, know? yeah, you can make the question of, of which team has had been more surprising. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, Oklahoma got Dylan Gabriel back. He missed most of last year. And so he makes a big difference. He's a very good quarterback. He had a great week last week. Uh, so, uh, that makes a difference having him back. Uh, but I do really think this Texas team uh, is really shaping up into something that we haven't seen, you know, since the Mac Brown heyday. Uh, and that is that they're just good all over. Uh, they've got uh, when Quinn Euros is playing right, uh, he's really a top, you know, he's a top 10 quarterback. Uh, you know, if now that their running game has been uh, unbelievably good the last couple of weeks, and that's, they're down to a, a guy that was not even their starting running back when the season started. Their defense is playing really well now. Um, they have everything clicking. You know, I, I was talking to some people the other day uh, when I was at the A&M Arkansas game, uh, and I said something about Georgia. And, and you know, the Bulldogs are the defending, uh, you know, national champions twice over. So you have to give them their due respect. But they haven't played real well the last few weeks. The SEC mm-hmm. as a whole hasn't played that well. I think there's a really good chance that if Texas really handles Oklahoma, now last year they beat them 40 to nothing, right? So that was an embarrassment. That's that's not going to happen again, I don't think. Uh, but if, if Texas were to beat Oklahoma and, and the Georgia were to struggle, I think there would be a lot of people giving votes for Texas as number one. Uh, yeah. I think that right now they look like the best team in the country. Uh, or at least so, in the discussion now, and if they win this game handily, they're going to be every week. You look at you look at that, and they have a chance to get to number one every week if they get past this game. I would think they they do, and and I I think you know the, the way it looks now on their schedule. There's there's Oklahoma this week, and then there's Kansas State, and they get by both those, and then they of course it comes back to what they uh, to do after that. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it all sets up. But I think this is this Texas team has a real chance to, to make something happen. Uh, this should be uh, a, a really fun game. I hope it's a, a fun game. You know, you don't oh, – uh, the blowouts are fun for Texas fans. I like to see when something's happening. And, and uh, you, you can't always predict because of the emotions that, you know, that run in this game and with this rivalry. And also when you've got half and half – uh, fans yeah. in the stands so it's always buzzing because something's always happening mm-hmm. right it's never it's never quiet in the in the cotton bowl for that game uh because of that so it, it does kind of tend to lend itself to upsets and those kind of things that are going to happen i gotta say I, I, I will pick texas to win this game i think that they uh i think they are the better team uh, i i think that uh if there's one thing you can say about quinn yours is that 
He does tend to rise to the occasion for really big games. Um, he has tended to struggle in games uh, that they should win, and people were really expecting them to win uh, big. So I, I do think that uh, they have shown a lot of things uh, that will indicate they can win this game. And also, you know, the, the reason why people talk about their winning now is not just because, you know, okay, they happen to be playing well. It's just that for the first time in a long time, they've got a lot of good players. Um, you know, scouts were saying that there's there may be as many as 10 players mm-hmm. drafted off of this team. They haven't had – 10 players drafted off uh, in the first, of course, you know, back in the day, that 83 team had, I believe, what, 13 players drafted. But some of those players were taken after the seventh round. Uh, Now we don't have more than seven rounds in the draft anymore. So uh, that's a lot of players to be have drafted if you get 10 uh, in seven rounds. And and there there have been years in these last few years where where Texas hasn't had anybody drafted. Mm -hmm. So for all the talk about why Texas can't win, Essentially, that's it, <laughs> is that they haven't had talent the players levels. Yeah. of the talent that they used to get, and they, and now they've got it. Uh, so it's kind of remarkable to see all this. I was not a huge Steve Sarkeesian fan, or at least not a huge fan of the hire. You know, to me, to think that, and the reasons given for it, well, because, you know, he's coaching the SEC, and we're going to the SEC, and we want to have a coach who prepare us for that. It's like, well, you know, and then you could have, there were lots of people you could have hired their SEC coaches. This was a guy who'd been in Washington and been at USC, two storied programs and didn't really win in either one of those. He was just kind of mediocre in both places. Uh, so, you know, it's not like he hadn't had an opportunity to work with really great material. He did, and he didn't do a whole lot with it. Well, now he is doing something with it. So, We'll see where it goes. Obviously, Texas has to, you know, to make that statement. They, at this point, to me, if Texas does not make the college football playoff, it, this season will have been a disaster uh, because there were too many expectations built now because of the way they played, because of beating Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And you can say what you want about Alabama not being the Alabama of old. They dominated that game. Uh, and certainly yeah. did in the fourth quarter. Uh, they did something to Alabama that has not happened to Nick Saban since he's been in Tuscaloosa. So that was really impressive what they did there. They can't waste that. They can't waste this season on what in the kind of momentum they have built to this point. I think this is a team that it it has to at least get to the college football playoff. And I don't even know if that's going to be enough uh, for what they're, they're going to, they're building toward. Uh, They got to have to at least get the national championship game. Cause look, TCU got in it last year, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can talk about the fact that they got blown out by Georgia in the championship game, which they did. Maybe it wasn't a good idea that they actually made it and got exposed like that. But, you know, TCU got there with a pretty good team, eight players drafted on that team. So that mm-hmm. was a pretty good – that was that team had a lot more talent than uh, what we, you know, probably would have conceded. And I think even Sonny Dykes thought at one point. But you can't – you can't let TCU get there the year before to the college football playoff, win a semifinal against a pretty good Michigan team, yeah. and get to the to the finals, and not do that yourself. You know, if you're if you're Texas, uh, there, I, I think we're really approaching the point now where it's kind of like the no excuses. You know, they they keep calling this the uh, you know the embrace the hate tour. I think it needs to be the no excuses tour. They need to go around this last lap of the Big Twelve and and win this thing and and, and run the table. Well, and they've got a cap. I mean, when you're a, a a proud program that has fallen from its former glory, 
once you have a chance to capitalize and get back to that level, you have to do it. Uh, you can't get to that point and then take a step or two back again and then try to get there again. You've got to break back through and you've got to get there. And just just the momentum that will do for recruiting with who they already have, the quarterback and waiting they have there. But the breakout this year before they go into the SEC, where it's going to be even more difficult, I mean, this is the, – the moment is there for them, and they have to capture this moment to get back to the type of program they were viewed as earlier, several decades ago. Yeah, no question about it. This is this is it for them. I, I just I, – it just, it just all feels like that. Everything is setting up across the, the country, right? I, I don't see yeah. – you, you don't see another dominant team. You don't, not, there's no. no one that's dominant on both sides of the ball. You know, Georgia's defense is always going to be good, but they're struggling offensively. You know, you look at USC – it's a typical Lincoln Riley team. Great offense, no defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they 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 let Georgia, they let Colorado just surge right back in that game uh, on Saturday. You you just can't have that kind of stuff happen. I don't see anybody coming out of the, of the West that looks uh that looks oh. Which is why this Oklahoma game is so significant for Texas this year. Oh, absolutely, it is. They 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 have to win this. Well, they got they've got to run out. You know the table. And the thing is, they should run out. And I do think. This is the the big challenge, right? How yep. good is Oklahoma with Dylan Gabriel being back and playing so well? It, it, it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. But this will be a a, a big uh, test for for Texas, no question. And frankly, Oklahoma has to play well because I, I think Texas makes the you know the the committee will will take Texas no matter what because they beat Alabama. I don't really yep. think that the rest of their schedule really matters that much. They're going to have to win those games, obviously. But you know the the what the coaches on the committee always look for is that how many how much NFL talent do you have? That's what they always look for, and the and the Texas has a lot, so it's not going to be a problem for Texas to to I think to get in the into the college football playoff. They just have to live up to it by winning the rest of their games, uh, and I, they they might be able to get there if they lost this game. Maybe if it, you know Oklahoma's done that before, right? Oklahoma's lost this game in the Cotton Bowl at the State Fair and gone on and, and made the the college football playoff. Mm-hmm. But that's just that's a hard road to go. You don't want to take that. And you know, they, they built too much momentum already. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for coming in and listening. Hopefully next week uh, when we come back, the, the Rangers will still be playing. We'll see if that's the case. Uh, and by the time uh, you listen out. to this podcast, they'll either be up one zero or down one zero. That's exactly right. So we'll know you'll know a lot better than we do. And maybe you can tell us something. You probably could anyway. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's Yeah, that guy goes without saying, right? So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks and we appreciate it. See ya. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.